The following Dharma talk was given by Katie Yosha Scott Childress. Yosha is a senior student in the Mountains and Rivers Order, a ceramics artist, and a library director in the Hudson Valley. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or to find out more about our various programs, visit us online at cmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Hojin Sensei, who is the abbess of this beautiful temple, um, asked me to give the talk today. And um, I am uh, a practitioner. Um, I live upstate. Um, and. Uh, like everybody else in this room, I'm a lay practitioner. I'm not a monastic. And um, so I'm going to be talking about that, about lay practice and what's that, what that is like for me. Because finding time for something like this is kind of a big deal when you have uh, a life in the world, as I'm assuming all of us do. Um, this is, you know, not our, our full-time job uh, that we can dedicate to the, the Dharma. And we have a lot of obligations that we need to fulfill. From what we know, um, Zen came from Chan in China. And um, it took root in monasteries. And uh, so it was mostly male uh, at least those are the records that were preserved. And um, these male monastics uh, dedicated copious amounts of time to zazen, to meditation. And so that's, that's the core of our practice. It is seated, seated meditation. And um, so they were sort of cloistered from the day-to-day -day world. Um, they would go on uh, begging rounds and uh, beg for alms for their food. But otherwise, um, they were able to really dedicate themselves to that. Um, the uh, male ancestor um, that is credited with bringing Buddhism from India to China, Bodhidharma, is famous for having sat facing a wall for nine years. <clears throat> so we don't know if that's an apocryphal story or not, but it um, is something that we're meant to really contemplate as we're sitting and our knees are getting sore and we want to move around. It's like, no, this guy sat down for nine years. <laughs> like, we can do this. We've got it in another 15 minutes in us or whatever it is. Um, but, you know, I came to this practice as a parent with young children. And so um, sitting in front of the wall for nine years was definitely not an option. Um, and I couldn't even do a lot of the meditation intensives that um, happen at the monastery and sometimes here. So, you know, how do we, how do we find our way into this practice that is so based in this you know, turning, turning inward and turning away from the world when, you know, we, we live in the world. So for me, um, training that I got from 
every single weekend intensive, meditation intensive that I did um, has gone a long way toward helping me find and create a regular home-setting practice. Um, and uh, it's, it's hard to describe how that translates until you do it, but um, every time I do a meditation intensive, my home practice is completely, you know, renewed and, and stronger. It gets stronger all the time. Um, so at the monastery, uh, they get up at around four in the morning. And um, because everybody's doing it and everybody has to be with their butt on that seat by 425 in the morning, you just do it. You just get up, you're like trudging through the rain and the sleet, and, and but everybody's doing it, so it's okay. And so then you get home and it's like, ah, my alarm's going off, but it's really warm in here. I, I don't know if I can do this. Getting up before it's, you know, light out and I'm tired and... And, and so, you know, how do, we, how do we find that for ourselves? How do we whip that up? Um, the time that I've always carved out for myself for zazen is early in the morning. And especially when, you know, I had young kids before anybody was awake. Because otherwise there were demands um, upon me. And... Um, so I continue to, to sit early in the morning. Um, I really find it challenging to sit at night. Um, I do it sometimes, but, you know, it's not my regular practice. Um, and um, as, you know, my life shifted and my kids got bigger, I did get to spend more time doing uh, meditation intensives. And so, you know, again... There are different seasons in our lives, and, you know, we, I think, need to honor that and recognize that, um, and, and some seasons are, are very favorable for us to be able to really turn inward, and, and some seasons we're just going to do the best that we can and meet the, the demands of our life, because um, we, you know, we can't turn away from that either, um, but, you know, the, the, the more meditation that I do, the more that I want to do. So it's kind of like this beneficial, self-perpetuating cycle. And at first it feels hard and, and you know, your body hurts and um, it's hard to settle. And we get into these habits of, you know, maybe um, sort of punishing ourselves for, for not being focused enough and things like that. And you know, we have to, we're, this is a calming practice. We, we start learning to calm down and forgive ourselves for our crazy minds and just tolerate that, tolerate that craziness and uh, let it dissipate because we're not, we're not forcing anything, we're not pushing it away, we're not holding on to it, just seeing it, it's okay and letting it go which is what we're all taught in beginning instruction. Um, but, you know, you may think, oh, okay, so 
they just gave me the beginning instruction, there's more, right? There's not that much more to it, actually. <laughs> Seeing it, letting it go. And, um, you know, I take more and more time away from family and friends to do meditation intensives. Um, and um, I sometimes think about, you know, the time that I, I have not been present um, for different things that have gone on. And um, I, I know that um, the time that I've taken to do this has, you know, I've missed things that were going on, and then at the same time, it has made me a much more patient parent and patient and giving friend. And so, um, you know, while I can't spend as much time with the people I love, I can actually be more present for them when I'm there, which is, you know, um, hard to put a price on. Um, you know, I, I remember when I my kids were little, bef- really little, like before I had come to practice, really, and um, I was in some lather of anxiety and, <clears throat> you know, whatever was going on, some drama in my mind. And it was so upsetting to me. And we're driving in the car, and the kids are in the back seat. And, you know, my daughter is telling me something. And, you know, I'm just not listening to her. And she's like, Mommy, 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 listen to me. And I, and I just kind of got angry. And I was like, just be quiet. Like, I can't right now. Like, I had no space at all to hear this this person that I love so much and that, you know, I, I want to do a good job like raising this person and I'm, I'm just don't have the capacity, the space to, to be there at that moment because I'm so consumed with whatever it was. It felt really important at the moment. So practice, you know, gives us some space to be able to see that, see that thought, let it go, come back to this moment. And um, those strong habits and thoughts and, and neuroses start to not have such a strong grip on us the more that we see them. And we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, again, yeah, I've seen you, mm-hmm. So many times we see it over and over again. And just keep letting it go. Letting it go. So another thing I also think about as a, a you know a home practitioner is like how to practice well so that I can really use the time that I have on the cushion or if I'm, you know, in a meditation intensive and it's only half a day, you know, it's not a week long. That's all I have. That's, that's, that's all I can do because I'm working and, you know, so forth. Um, so I, I remember um, my daughter had a piano teacher and, um, you know, I think I asked her how much she practiced. 
And she said, well, you know, it's really changed over time because it's not so much about the amount of time. She said, I'm better at practicing now. And I think that that's, that's kind of what happens that, you know, as the more we practice, we get kind of better at practicing so that the time gets used better, uh, you know, for when we're on the cushion. So uh, I'll talk a little bit more about the, how, how that happens. It happens on the cushion, but it also happens so much off the cushion that that kind of preparing to sit is happening and we can be kind of doing those preparations all the time. So what what is Zen practice? And I, I don't actually know the answer to that, so I'm just putting it out there. Um, we have this seated meditation, right? And then, you know, what are, what are we actually doing here? It's not so easy um, to do this, but we're developing concentration and clarity so that we can actually, you know, see these thoughts for what they actually are. They're ephemeral. They don't have any substance. Right? They, but they're what we create our entire identity and world around, and they don't have any substance. It's kind of amazing. So we get turned around all the time by these thoughts and emotions and act badly sometimes. So for me, so much of, of practice is reminding myself to practice. You know, even when I'm sitting and doing zazen, my mind starts wandering. Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be concentrating on my breath in this moment. And then you go off and, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be practicing. And just, you know, keep remembering, remembering, remembering. And again, not like getting mad at ourselves because we forgot again. Seems really simple, but we have lots of, lots of um, what we call habit energies and patterns that have brought us, you know, to where we are now. Um, so there are some of the Buddhist practices that you know, happen off the cushion, I think a lot of them have been carried forward by lay people. I I don't know if Buddhism would have survived um, if it were only monastics who were practicing. Um, You know, lay people have been there all along. Uh, The Buddha talked about a fourfold sangha that included monastics and lay people. So, there, there is a, there are, there are ways that we're going to, uh, to do this. Um, the, the eightfold path, the eightfold noble path, uh, which the Buddha laid out, um, includes three, um, aspects that are, are, uh, aimed at living in the world. Um, they're, they're about, uh, ethical conduct. 
And so, um, you know, they're, they're not about meditation and turning inward, but they're related to that. Uh, right action, right livelihood, and right speech. And so these are all things that we actually do off the cushion that, you know, are three of the eightfold path. That's, that's kind of a big percentage of, of it. Um, and, you know, the Buddha recognized that we can't be liberated or liberate others um, if we're causing harm to other people. And so, you know, practice is actually very socially oriented in this way. And, and then it goes beyond not, not harming, but actually doing good and, and actualizing good for others. So these are the, the three pure ethical precepts that, that we um, take refuge in and that we vow to uphold as Buddhists to not create evil, to practice good, and to actualize good for others. So, you know, just thinking about right speech, we have a um, moral precept that says, um, uh, see the perfection, do not speak of others' errors and faults. And this is really hard. It's really hard, you know? I mean, especially like, the realm of politics, and, you know, there's a lot of errors and faults out there, for sure. So how do we, how do we make change in the world and we don't speak of it? Like, what, what is that, right? So we need to be discerning, and one of the big motivations for me for practicing every day is, you know, especially any day where I'm going to be seeing people, like going into the world, going to work, is that I feel like my mouth is a loaded gun. It's dangerous. And I can get into all kinds of trouble with my mouth, with saying something to somebody, right? That, that's one of the ways that we create a lot of karma, is just by saying things. And so the meditation practice helps us create just like a little gap in, you know, the, the reactivity. Because somebody will say something to us and we're triggered, we're pissed, right? They just insulted us or whatever it is, okay? And the, the um, practicing helps us see that, see that we're having that thought, we're having that feeling, right? But we've also created a little gap where we don't have to act at that moment and do something about it. We have, we have a little choice. And that, that, that little moment of choice can mean a huge amount, right, for, for what, what happens and what we end up doing. Uh, in any situation. The other thing is um, that when we are out there creating harmful karma in our relationships, that we're having like really difficult relationships with people and we don't seem to be able to work our way through them, 
when we sit down to sit, it's really hard to settle our minds because, well, she said, but, you know, I know that I, I was first and, you know, we're, we're just replaying the whole drama in our head and we keep, you know, reifying like I was right and she shouldn't have said that and, you know, all of this stuff rather than, you know, having created these conditions where we didn't say that thing in the first place. We didn't get into it with that person in the first place. We didn't have any conflict. So we're much calmer and we're, we're ready to sit down and, and, you know, just look, just see. Um, Wapola Rahula in his book, What the Buddha Taught, said, it should be realized that the Buddhist ethical and moral conduct aims at promoting a happy and harmonious life, both for the individual and for society. This moral conduct is considered as the indispensable foundation for all higher spiritual attainments. No spiritual development is possible without this moral basis. So I think in in Zen we can kind of lose sight of this, um, the social aspects of the path, and you know want to go off and and be in the woods and and just meditate you know by ourselves and focus on right concentration and right mindfulness. Um, as if those are the most liberative aspects of, of practice, but they can't be separated from these social aspects of practice and, and these ways that we interact in the world. Um, Rahula goes on to say, ethical conduct, which we call sila, is built on a vast conception of universal love and compassion for all living beings on which the Buddhist teaching is based. It is regrettable that many scholars forget this great ideal of the Buddha's teachings and indulge in only dry philosophical and metaphysical divagations when they talk about Buddhism. The Buddha gave his teaching for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, and out of compassion for the world. So we've been studying karma uh, during these last couple of months, um, kind of studying it intensively. And, and karma is, is considered action. And so that's, that's that other part of the Eightfold Path, right action. What are we doing? What, you know, not... Right livelihood, how are we make a, making a living? Right speech, what are we saying? And then what are we doing? So we do things, we create karma with our bodies, with our speech, and with our minds. So our, our thoughts create karma. Good to be here. Um, we've been reading a book by Trala Kyagbon, and in his book on on karma, he says, another key to the Buddha's um, view of karma is intention. 
Karmic actions are intimately related to our intentionality. Even though karma literally means action, it is not just the action itself that has portent. The, the intention with which acts are created, uh, sorry, the intention with which actions are carried out is actually more important than the action itself. The, the intention behind a generous act is also very important. If we're generous with the hope of getting something in return or to gain favor, then our good intention, our good intention and hence the benefit of the act is diminished. This principle of intention translates to all forms of action, but the Buddha was emphatic about the importance of practicing generosity and practicing it properly. It is the manner in which we practice generosity that counts, not so much how little we are, how much or how little we're giving away. So it's like this with practice too knowing our intention for practice, clarifying our intention for practice is so important. You know, most of us who really get serious about doing this practice, or I'll, and I'll speak for myself, um, are, are pretty desperate and, and we're suffering. Um, and I know that I felt like I had really exhausted other avenues of solving the problem. So I really just had to sit down and, and look, look inside. Uh, so, you know, that, that's, that was my intention, right? We, and I think a lot of us come here to alleviate our own suffering which is really, it's necessary. And at the same time, the more we practice, the more we notice the suffering of people around us. And it actually, everyone else's suffering and my suffering can't actually be separated. And so we end up having a much bigger job than we even thought when we started this. And so our intention, in a sense, widens and it deepens because it's not just, it's not just the problems that I'm dealing with here or here or wherever this thing begins and ends, but it's, it's everything, right? It's, it's everything. I really, you know, I can't, really truly be at peace if everyone around me is suffering. It's just like that would be weird. Um, Master Dogen in uh, Gyoji, which is uh, called On Ceaseless Practice, said, the great way of Buddhas and ancestors invariably involves unsurpassed ceaseless practice. This practice rolls on in a cyclic manner without interruption. Not a moment's gap has occurred in their giving rise to the intention to realize Buddhahood, in their doing the training and practice, 
and in their experiencing enlightenment, and they're realizing nirvana. For the great way of ceaseless practice rolls on just like that. As a result, the practice is not done by forcing oneself to do it, and it is not done by being forced by someone else. It is a ceaseless practice that is never tainted by forcing. The merits from this ceaseless practice sustain us and sustain others. So I, I think that Dogen is saying that, that this practice begets practice and it rolls on in this beneficial, cyclical manner. And I love this, uh, this statement that it's never tainted by forcing. We can't force ourselves to practice and no one can force us. Isn't that amazing? And yet, we've, our, our aspiration brought us all here today, and it just completely fills this entire room, each, each of us. Dogen says, between aspiration, practice, enlightenment, and nirvana, there is not a moment's gap. Continuous practice is the circle of the way. So we already, just by having this aspiration and sitting our butts down on these cushions today, we've already, we've already completed the circle and we're, we're, we're still going. I think about the Zen ancestors who sat in Zazen for years at a time in monasteries or hermits in mountains. You know, it, it, when you read about these things, these are the stories that get handed down. You know, it feels like Zen is this, this kind of esoteric, unattainable thing that, you know, is, is out, out there. But, I think that Dogen's pointing to an aspiration that doesn't have any location. It, 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 it is present, and it, it's, it's here. It's your aspiration. It's my aspiration. Just thinking about, in the morning we chant, um, vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. I feel like this, you know, we create this formless field of benefaction with these these aspirations, these chantings. Um, I've been reading the Avantamsaka Sutra, which is a sort of foundational sutra for Mahayana Buddhism and Chan, Zen, and they have, there are these purifying practices that were written for um, monastics so that they would have these little um, sort of sayings that they would practice when they were going about doing anything during the day to remind them, again, to practice. And um, they, um, 
had these, it, they came in a form that was like, while doing this, they should wish that all, all beings and then whatever it was. So one was seeing a garden cultivated, they should wish that all beings in the garden of sense desires clear away the weeds of craving. And if they see an empty bowl, uh, they should wish that all beings be pure of heart and empty of afflictions. If they see a full bowl, they should wish that all beings completely fulfill all virtuous ways. So just, you know, all these, these things that the, the monastics would encounter you know, it, they would even, you know, have ones for going to the bathroom, brushing your teeth. And it's always taking you out of your, your small little drama of your mind and, and wishing for something good and big for everybody. When they enter a bath, they should wish that all beings enter omniscient knowledge, knowing past, present, and future are equal. While washing their bodies, they should wish that all beings be undefiled in body and mind, radiantly pure inside and out. When they eat, they should wish that all beings feed on the joy of meditation and be sated by delight in truth. So <clears throat> Thich Nhat Hanh, um, practiced these. He had a, a book of these little gathas that um, he was given as a monastic and he uh, he apparently used them all his life and um, made some of his own and then uh, Aitken Roshi who is uh, a Zen teacher who was a Zen teacher um, he's dead now uh, wrote a book of these purifying practices um, called The Dragon Who Never Sleeps and um, he used the same format as the Avatamsaka Sutra, but um, he tried to tailor them more to our, you know, modern daily lives, uh, so that you know, again, we can make our our places that we live um, be places where we're practicing all all the time, and our, you know, some people put up notes, little you know, sticky notes or something like that to remind them. Um, you can use them at work, wherever, wherever we are. Um, so here's a few of Aitken's gathas. Feeling toxic with aches in my joints, I vow with all beings to acknowledge we're all of us dying and take comfort in hot lemonade. It's good, right? When the dentist takes up his drill, I vow with all beings to welcome the pain and discomfort as doors to steady the mind. That's, that's what we were telling you with the beginning instruction and your legs hurting. Steady the mind. When thoughts, when thoughts form an endless procession, I vow with all beings to notice the space between them and give the thrushes a chance. Isn't that a good one? I like that one. In a paranoid cycle of thoughts, I vow with all beings to enjoy a cold glass of water 
and step out to look at the sky. Just noticing that we're being paranoid is like, is big, you know, it's big. And then having a glass of water and going outside is epic. When I feel I haven't got time, I vow with all beings to light incense and making my bows touch the place of no time. When I'm drawn to watch crime on TV, I vow with all beings to smile at my own little drama and expose the killer of time. (laughs) So good. So our our ordinary way of going about our life is um, distracted and unaware. And these little reminders interrupt that distracted stream and those habits that we're in all the time so that we can really live and see what's going on around us. Because, you know, we find time to practice in every single thing that we encounter, but we forget that that's possible and that, 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 that that's there for us all the time. My sister uh, visited New York City recently from California, and she was really struck by how much New Yorkers love to use their horns. You know, and not the subtle kind of like, beep, beep, I'm over here, beep. It's like, ha, ha, you know, it's this like, fuck, yeah. And, uh, you know, we hear it all the time. And it it just, you know, this this act permeated like a two-block radius. And everybody who heard it, got caught up somehow in that that aggression and that anger and impatience and hostility and indifference to, you know, how they affect other people because, you know, maybe we're thinking, that asshole, what, what's his problem? And then we're off to the races too. And so um, I was thinking... Um, that maybe a little gotha for hearing a horn would be a good idea. And I wrote a little one. You can write your own, but it just might be helpful. Hearing a horn blaring, I vow with all beings to notice all around me the myriad acts of cla- of caring. Sorry, I'm, I fumbled that a little bit. I'll say it again. Hearing a horn blaring, I vow with all beings to notice all around me the myriad acts of caring. Because there, there's so much caring going on all the time. And when we hear that, it just sets, it, it, we forget. And it sets us into this, you know, this mind state. Um, you know, Chosen Roshi gave a, a she's a um, Zen aunt, of ours, I guess, and she gave a, um, a retreat at the monastery on the four immeasurables, 
Uh, may all beings be free from suffering and the root of suffering. May all beings know happiness and the root of happiness. May all beings live in sympathetic joy, rejoicing in the happiness of others. And may all beings live in equanimity, free from passion, aggression, and delusion. And she said um, that when she hears a siren, she invokes the four immeasurables. And, um, you know, I think probably all of us have had some kind of medical emergency or have been touched by that and or you know a police drama and so when we hear it we wish that all beings may be without anxiety that all beings may be free that all beings may be without fear including the police, because fear is what causes them to act sometimes, right? So just holding, when we hear it, like offering that back out, we don't know what it, you know, how we affect each other, but we're all connected. So these are, again, ways that we practice so that when, when we hear that siren, we're not, you know, just triggered by our own fear and our own anxiety. We're offering it back out. Um, so another little gatha that I was thinking might be helpful um, to cultivate mindfulness around cell phones. Um, I have a cell phone too, so, you know... I get it. It's it's a thing. Um, so you know, we we get so enthralled, and oh, somebody texted me. Oh my God, who is it? You know, and we're we're just so um, caught up in thinking that we're gonna find connection and love in this little box, this little screen. Um, And so, you know, just being mindful, why am I reaching for this again? You know, what am I hoping for here? And so here's the little gatha that I wrote. Feeling the pull of the black screen, I vow with all beings to be the love we seek and help others feel seen. So, um... I um I have a little gatha that I have said for many years um that is a little bit different format from this um but um I say it right when I wake up like at the the very moment that I realize that you know I'm awake in the morning um and um yeah, it just, you know, when we wake up in the morning, you know, for, for just a moment, we're, we're not anywhere, and then everything comes crashing back in, right? All of our, like, anxiety about, you know, what this day means, and some dread, and some excitement, and, you know, whatever it is, it just comes, like, 
you know, crashing in, and then here we are again. We've like recreated this this self, this thing we call ourself, and we march off to our life, you know. So anyway, um, this little gatha that I that I say right when I wake up, um, this human life so precious and fleeting. I vow to wake up with all sentient beings. And then, you know, it just sets, sets a little tone for my day, my vow. And it makes a difference. It's just a reminder. This day is so precious. Oh my God, I'm alive. I've been given a day, another day. Amazing, amazing. Right? Because it really, if it can feel heavy otherwise, really heavy to be alive. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about our ongoing programs and residency opportunities, visit ZMM.org.